Welcome, everybody, to episode number 297 of the Sean Sports Top Podcast. We are rapidly approaching number 300. I'm not sure if I'm going to do something special for that episode, if anything at all, what would it, what it might be. These trying times, I want to wish everyone, I hope everyone's staying safe out there. And um, this episode of Sean Sports Top is sponsored by Crimson IT. If you or someone you know has managed IT services, go to crimsonit.com or call them. If you tell them, if you're interested in their services and you tell them that you found their business and you're interested in their services slash products and you tell them that you found them from my podcast, they will give you a huge discount. So make sure to do that. Follow me on Instagram at theboy62, T-H-A-B-O-Y-Y-62. Go to my website at seansportstop.com. For access to every single episode, 1 through 300, on any platform that you listen to podcasts on, you can see which famous athletes I've interviewed so far. I'm interviewing Kenny Johnson tomorrow. He's the wrestling coach for UFC heavyweight Alexander Volkov and uh, Chris Cyborg. She's not a heavyweight, but yeah. And you can see the articles or, you know, a couple articles that I've written. It's been like at least a year, maybe even two years since I last written an article for my blog, but I will at some point get back to that. I've been fairly busy in the other aspects of my life. With all that said, with all that water under the bridge, there is a lot to talk about today, and I'm not even going to waste my time telling you what it is. Let's just get straight into his only other title came in 2004. John Cooper guided the franchise to the Stanley Cup final in 2015 as well. But the Lightning lost to the Chicago Blackhawks in six games. I believe they were in the Eastern Conference Finals in 2011 as well, before losing to the eventual Stanley Cup champion Boston Bruins. Uh, a number of players from that 2015 team are still on the roster. None more prominent than Steven Stamkos, who is the captain. The, uh, he was limited to only three minutes on the ice, but he undoubtedly served as a rallying point for his teammates. Braden Point got his 14th goal of the playoffs, setting a franchise record when he first drew blood on the power play in the first period. Blake Coleman doubled Tampa's lead in the second period, and that provided to be, that proved excuse me to be enough for the Lightning to win their Stanley Cup. Honestly, I was really I'm really happy for Tampa Bay. Um, I don't really have anything against the Dallas Stars, but they do have Joe Pavelski and Corey Perry, um, two players that used to be on the San Jose Sharks and Anaheim Ducks, respectively, who are obviously huge rivals with the Los Angeles Kings. That's the hockey team that I support. So those. Two players were the only reason why I preferred Tampa Bay to beat Dallas in the cup final. But other than that, I didn't really have strong feelings about it. Tampa Bay has been a top team for several years now. They had a historic collapse last year, getting swept. They had, so it was, here's the situation. They got swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets. The Lightning coming into that series tied the NHL all-time record for most points uh, in a season with like, I don't know, 115 or something. The, the Blue Jackets had never won a, ser- a playoff series coming into that point, coming into that series. And not only did they win, they swept Tampa Bay. So that was an unfathomable, unfathomable upset. It would be similar to the Golden State Warriors going 73-9 and and then getting swept by like the Chicago Bulls. Not here, getting swept by like the Phoenix Suns in the first round or like the Washington Wizards. It would be unbelievable to get to win. Their second cup. I'm happy that Stamkos got to win one. He's a he's a legend for sure. Switching gears to the NFL, 
this round goes to Patrick Mahomes. The reigning Super Bowl MVP led the Kansas City Chiefs to a 34-20 victory over the reigning league MVP Lamar Jackson on the Baltimore Ravens in Monday's showdown at M&T Bank Stadium. The clash between arguably the two best players and two arguably the two top teams in the league was an immediate headliner as soon as the NFL's 2020 schedule was announced and Mahomes led the way in the potential AFC Championship game preview. The result is a 3-0 record for the Chiefs and a 1-1 and a one-game lead over the Las Vegas Raiders in the early AFC West race. As for Baltimore, a solid rushing showdown from Jackson, showing, excuse me, from Jackson, was not enough to prevent the loss. The Ravens are now 2-1 and one and looking up at the 3-0 Steelers who are in the AFC North, obviously. Uh, Patrick Mahomes was great. I mean, he was sensational. 31-41 of 41 for 385 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions, including four carries for 26 yards and a rushing touchdown. Tyreek Hill was very good, as was McCall Hardman. Lamar Jackson was not nearly as good. He was 15 of 28 with only 97 passing yards, a touchdown, and no interceptions. And he had nine carries for 83 yards, none of which. And he didn't have a single rushing touchdown. So when you hold Lamar Jackson to no rushing touchdowns, you know you're successful. The Chiefs are the better team. I think Patrick Mahomes is the better quarterback. He's already won a Super Bowl with the Chiefs. He's been league MVP. He's been Super Bowl MVP. The fact that Lamar Jackson won league, league MVP last year is one thing. It's very, very similar. It's eerily similar, I would say. Lamar Jackson and the Ravens are eerily similar to Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks of the NBA, where they, well, at this point, you could say year in and year out, have tremendous success in the regular season and then lose pretty early on in the playoffs uh, with their star player not necessarily showing up. With Giannis and Lamar, respectively. Uh, so that's that. Switching gears now to the NBA. This was amazing to see. Former NBA guard Delonte West has reportedly checked into rehab. According to Shams of The Athletic, West checked into a Florida rehab facility after Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban reunited with his mo- reunited him with his mother on Monday. Absolutely amazing for Mark Cuban, who is probably one of the busiest people you can meet. I mean, with all his businesses, being the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and just everything that he's involved in, I can't imagine how busy he is. For him to personally... Uh, come out to Delonte West, offer him help, and reunite him with his mother is absolutely amazing. Um, Shams tweeted, quote, Mark Cuban reached out to Delonte West's mother, Delphina Addison, asking how he can help. Answer was simple, find Delonte. Cuban did on Monday, waited with West until his mother arrived to hotel, and West finally took step many close to him have awaited, entered rehab. Cuban told ESPN's Tim McMahon that he picked up West at a gas station on Monday, and as McMahon writes, quote, is attempting to help the homeless former NBA player get his life back on track. TMZ Sports reported West's family and friends have been, quote, trying desperately to get West to go to rehab, and Cuban offered to help pay for the treatment. After a photo of West appeared to ask for money serviced online last week, TMZ noted that Jameer Nelson, who played with West uh, at St. Joseph's, Doc Rivers' former head coach with the Boston Celtics, and the NBA Players Association have been offering help to the 37-year-old. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely broke my heart. I think... Um, it was either earlier this year or late last year where a, a video surfaced of Delonte West being absolutely deranged and saying random things on the street somewhere. He was handcuffed by the police. Just someone that was someone that you could tell is ha- going through an extremely difficult time in their life that it, it, it just hurts on a human level to see that. And it's really amazing to see that Mark Cuban, like I said, an owner, an owner of an NBA that Delonte has a successful recovery. Briefly mentioned Doc Rivers when it comes to Delonte West, but he was fired by the LA Clippers. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George were reportedly asked for their input before the Clippers governor, Steve Ballmer, made the decision to part ways with head coach Doc Rivers. And you can blame 
you can blame it all you want on Doc Rivers. You can. He, yes, he was the head coach, and a lot of times that's the scapegoat in, in pro sports. But the fact of the and yes, he also blew a 3-1 lead with the Clippers in 2015 against the Houston Rockets in the conference semifinals with a complete other team. So yes, you can blame Doc Rivers or you can fire him and you know have him be the scapegoat and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is this. The duo that many, many, many people, many NBA fans, many analysts said was better than LeBron James and Anthony Davis. This is obviously Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. That same duo combined for a total of zero points in game seven against the Denver Nuggets in the fourth quarter. In the fourth quarter, I have to specify. Only in the fourth quarter, Kawhi and Paul George combined for zero points. They combined for zero points. I can't repeat it enough. I can't stress it enough. Two, arguably two of the best players in the world are in the NBA combined for no points in the fourth quarter of a game seven. When that happens, how are, how are you blaming the head coach? How are you firing the head coach? If I was the Clippers, I would trade Pandemic P. I mean, they gave up like who knows how many draft picks, like 10 first round picks or whatever it was, like six first round picks and Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Danilo Gallinari, I believe too, to get, it might have not been Danilo, but it was definitely, yeah, I'm not sure if it was Danilo or not, but it was definitely Shea Gilgis-Alexander and it might have been Danilo Gallinari too on top of six for first round picks to get Paul George from Oklahoma City to match him up with, or pair him up, I should say, with Kawhi Leonard. And then they absolutely shit the fucking bed. It is inexcusable. Um, according to ESPN, Balmer called, quote, several key players, including Leonard and George, in order to get their opinions. The report noted nothing Leonard and George told Balmer changed his mind and that the, the, and that the decision was Balmer's alone. So it seems like Steve Balmer was, was the biggest kind of proponent of firing Doc Rivers and Kawhi and Paul George were basically neutral. That's the vibe I'm getting from this report, that it wasn't Kawhi and Paul George that called for Doc Rivers to get fired. It was Steve Ballmer calling them up and saying, hey guys, I want to fire Doc Rivers. We need some kind of big change. I like both of you. Let's fire Doc and move on and uh, see, how, see how we fare next year. And Kawhi and Paul George were like, all right, that works for us, whatever. You know what I'm saying? That's what I thought it, that's what I think it was. And yeah, I mean, the Clippers are just, I mean, what can I say? Clippers going to clip. <laughs> it's, um, you know, really unfortunate. I um, definitely... I definitely would not, definitely would not want to be um, a Clipper, and that's for sure. <laughs> I'm really wrong for that, but as a Laker fan, I like to talk my shit, especially when Clipper fans think they're all hard. I mean, come on, man, come on, who you think you are? It's transition transitioning to tennis now. Serena Williams withdrew from the 2020 French Open before her scheduled second round match against Svitana Peronkova on Wednesday because of an Achilles injury. That's horrible. I hope everything is fine. She said, quote, I think I need four to six weeks of sitting and doing nothing, at least two weeks of just sitting down. She's a 23-time Grand Slam singles champion. She suffered the injury during her during her U.S. Open semifinals, lost to Victoria Azarenka less than three weeks before her withdrawal from Paris. Quote, it wasn't my ankle, it was actually my Achilles. She said at the time, it just overstretched, it was pretty intense. She skipped the Italian Open to give herself some additional rest before the season's final major, but apparently it was not enough to get her back to full strength. Clearly, she's withdrawing. She added Wednesday, she, quote, more than likely won't play another tournament in 2020 because she's, quote, struggling to walk, which is a telltale sign that I should try to recover. She's now 39 years old. She's obviously the greatest female tennis player of all time. Arguably the most, she's arguably the most dominant athlete in the history of all sports, man or woman, like male or female. Uh, she's a four-time Olympic gold medalist. She owns the most Grand Slam titles in the open era, and she's only one away from tying Margaret Court for the most in history at 24. And you know what? Hopefully she's not cursed because she's been at 23 for about five years now. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wish Serena, uh, I wish Serena the absolute, the absolute best in her recovery for sure. 
Uh, I mean, so many players have been not playing the, the major tournaments because of coronavirus or, or injuries that they're dealing with. But with that, I'm switching gears back to the NFL. Um, the NFL has threatened teams with ad additional penalties, including potential suspensions or a forfeiture of draft picks. If sideline personnel are not in compliance with COVID-19-related protocols on game day, obviously I've reported that teams and coaches have been fined on multiple, multiple occurrences now throughout the early portion of the season for not wearing masks. On the sidelines, uh, through the first three weeks of the 2020 season, obviously multiple coaches have been fined. That includes Broncos head coach Vic Fangio, Raiders head coach John Gruden, Saints head coach Sean Payton, Niners head coach Kyle Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan and Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll, also Rams head coach Sean McVay. Each of them were fined $100,000 out of their personal uh, finances for violating face mask rules, and each of their teams were fined $250,000 as well. Uh, but the coaches have appealed their fines, according to Ian Rappaport of NFL Network. So, yeah, I mean, now it's getting serious. Now I think the organizations are going to be much more strict on the coaches wearing masks because now it has a direct impact on the organization in terms of, you know, you know, financial losses are one thing because those teams make millions and millions and millions of dollars. But when it comes to losing draft picks, that's something that they can't, uh, can't afford to happen for sure. So I think um, coaches are going to be much more compliant um, for sure. Um, with that, uh, with that, I am switching gears to more NFL. Week Week Four's game between the Pittsburgh Steelers and Tennessee Titans has been postponed because of the Titans' recent COVID nineteen outbreak. The NFL announced the game is set to be played on Monday or Tuesday instead. ESPN's Diana Rossini Rossini was the first to report the NFL is considering all options to reschedule the game, and that Monday night was one potential option, depending on test results for the Titans. Three players and five staff members tested positive for COVID-19 in a series of results that came back Tuesday. The Titans and Minnesota Vikings, which that was Tennessee's Week 3 opponent, both shut down operations as a result of the outbreak. Tuesday's round of testing confirmed one more positive result for a Titans player. So um, this is the first major test the NFL has faced during the, during the season regarding the COVID-19 pandemic. The preseason and first three weeks of the season were essentially you know, without incident, without positive tests. With Atlanta Falcons cornerback AJ Terrell being the only player to go on the reserve slash COVID-19 list over the first three weeks of the season, it was obviously always likely that some form of outbreak would happen because it's a fucking virus after all that shit spreads. So, um, yeah, I mean, it seems like the game will be re replayed at some point later in the season. Transitioning now to college football, Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott's proposal to expand the college football playoff to eight teams for this season was rejected by the College Football Management Committee, according to Heather Dinich of ESPN. Scott would have needed the approval of Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick and 10 FBS commissioners to have the measure passed. Um, Stanford head coach David Shaw expressed optimism that an expanded playoff will eventually happen, saying whether it's six or eight at some point in time is going to happen. We all know it. We all believe it. We're just going to do it very, very slowly and methodically, but it's the only thing that makes sense. The only thing that should matter is did you fight really, really hard your entire season to win your conference? If you did, you should get a ticket to the dance. Now, outside of those five, now who deserves it? You have to look at independence. You have to look at number twos in some of those conferences. Look at the roads they traveled. That's the only thing that truly makes sense, and I believe eventually we will get there, whether it's six or eight teams. I think it'll eventually happen. Um, personally, I think it should be at least eight teams. That's my personal opinion. I mean, I just don't understand how um, there are so many very, very good college football teams that just deserve to make the playoff, in my opinion. Four is too little, in my opinion. I mean, how do you start with the semifinals? And even if even you look at like a couple years ago when UCF went undefeated and obviously they didn't make the playoffs because they didn't play any like real tough 
university in terms of like Alabama or Clemson or anything like that. So it's not like they went undefeated against those those kind of teams. They had a much easier schedule, but you know they also have a very very fair argument. You know they played D one football. They went undefeated. Uh, not many other teams did. So why are they not in the playoff? I mean, it's a perfectly valid argument. So when when you have things like that. It definitely makes sense for um, coaches and, and teams and players wanting to expand the playoffs for sure, the format, and I'm all for it. I've been saying it for years. I think it should be at least eight teams. Switching gears to baseball now, MLB playoffs are in full swing, pun intended. Um, this year, there are 16 teams in the playoffs, which is more than ever, and there's another round. The wild card round is usually only two teams per conference or two teams per league, two in the NL, two in the AL, and then there's only one. there's one winner from that wild card round that moves on to the divisional series in each conference. But this year, um, hopefully it's not permanent. Hopefully it's not permanent. There's a there's a whole wild card round for everyone involved, and it's best of three. And the Tampa Bay Rays are moving on from the wild card round to the American League Division Series with an 8-2 victory over the Toronto Blue Jays on Wednesday. That completed a two-game sweep. Uh, the Rays jumped on Jay starter Hyunjin Ryu early with three hits and, and one run in the first inning. As Tyler Glass now tossed a quality start in his 2020 postseason debut. Hunter Renfro provided more than enough offense with a second inning Grand Slam. After winning the AL East by seven games, the Rays will now face the winner of the wild card series between the Cleveland Indians and New York Yankees. Uh, the Rays surprisingly went 8-2 and two against the Yankees this season, but they did not face the Indians after the MLB schedule was adjusted because of COVID-19. And I'll get into who won the Yankees and Indians series uh, shortly. But first, we have the Houston Astros, who surprisingly punched their ticket to the ALDS as well with a 3-1 win over the Minnesota Twins on Wednesday at Target Field. So the, both games they won were on the road. This was surprising to me because the Astros are still a very talented team, but they did not have the cheating the cheating um, advantage that they have had in years past in the postseason. But they still beat a three-seed Minnesota Twins team that looked very, very good in the season. You know, they had a very, very loaded offense with a great pitching staff and a solid bullpen. But the Twins just kept collapsing in the playoffs as they always do. They have now lost 18 straight postseason games. Which it, which is the longest streak of uh, postseason losses in a row in any of the four major major sports in history. So that's an unbelievable stat there for the Twins, one they would like to forget, but ultimately can't. And um, Zach Greinke and Fran Valdez com combined to limit the Twins to only one run on four hits in Game 1. Jose or Orquidi was similarly successful in silencing Minnesota's offense on a Wednesday. Carlos Correa dealt a decisive blow with a solo home run to right center in the top of the seventh. And the Astros advance to face the winner of the A's and White Sox series, which I will cover a little bit later in this episode. This episode is going to be absolutely loaded. I mean, it's going to be, it is going to be stacked. So with that, I'm switching gears to the Yankees and the Indians, a chaotic and eventful night that included two rain delays, four blown leads, 19 walks, 12 pitchers, a ninth inning rally, and a pair of fan arrests in the outfield bleachers culminated in the New York Yankees beating the Cleveland Indians 10-9 in Game 2 of the AL wildcard series on Wednesday in Progressive Field. It was an unbelievable game. So back and forth, the, the Indians jumped on 4-0. The Yankees were winning. The Indians were winning. It was a crazy game. Um, the Yankees have now advanced to the ALDS, and they will face the Tampa Bay Rays. They swept Cleveland. Uh, the Yankees trade trailed 9-8 entering the ninth inning, but a walk and a pair of singles loaded the bases with no out. Brett Gardner struck out, but Gary Sanchez hit a game-tying sack fly to score Mike Talkman drive him in. Um, 
And then American League batting champion DJ LeMahieu, who's been huge for the Yankees in his first year with the team, singled home Gio Urshela, the former Cleveland Indian, to score the game-winning run. And the Yankees are looking hot. I mean, they've been the streakiest team in baseball throughout this shortened season, but they're looking very hot in time for a huge matchup against the Tampa Bay Rays, who, like I said, were 8-2 against the Yankees in the season. With that, I'm switching gears to arguably the biggest story of, of this episode. The fifth-seeded Miami Heat making out of the Eastern Conference Finals is an incredible accomplishment, but it is apparently a different story going against the powerhouse Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers wasted no time setting the tone in the 2020 NBA Finals with a commanding 116-98 victory over Miami in Wednesday's Game 1 at the Walt Disney World Resort. It was more of the same for the Lakers in this matchup after they won both, uh, both games in the regular season as well. Anthony Davis and LeBron James, to no one's surprise, spearheaded the latest win for the Purple and Gold over the Heat, who fell short despite a solid game from Jimmy Butler, but they lost Bam Adebayo and Goran Dragic to injury. So those are huge losses for the Heat, and I believe both of them are doubtful for Game 2. I mean, the, the Heat looked great to start. They were up 14 points in the first quarter, but the Lakers just took over the rest of the game. AD was sensational, 34 points, 9 rebounds, 5 assists, 3 blocks. LeBron with 25, 13, and 9, 1 assist shy of a triple-double. Jimmy Bowler was solid with 23.5 assists, 2 steals, Kendrick Nunn at 18.5 boards. As you can see, Goran Dragic and Bam Adebayo, two very important players to the Miami Heat. Neither of them um, neither of them were one of the stat leaders for the Miami Heat, so that is, that is unfortunate. Now switching gears to more basketball, Kyrie Irving, despite not playing for a while now, is still... He's still in the headline. Here, give me give me one second. Give me give me one second. I got some technical difficulties here. Let me just write when I covered what. Um, cross this out. All right. So we're back to it. Kyrie Irving is still in the headlines. Uh, even though Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant have yet to have yet to play an NBA game together as teammates, Irving has high praise for the two-time NBA Finals MVP. Appearing on KD's the ETC's podcast, Irving said Durant is the first teammate he's had that he trusts to be able to make a clutch shot trailing late in the fourth quarter. And many people, obviously, rightfully so, saw that as a jab at former at Kyrie's former teammate, LeBron James. Irving did note he wasn't trying to slight any of his previous teammates, but he, quote, felt guilty when he wasn't ta- taking the last shot in games because, quote, I felt like I was the best option. As you probably know, during the 2016 NBA Finals, playing alongside LeBron James, Irving was the one who scored the go-ahead basket for the Cleveland Cavaliers in Game 7 against the Golden State Warriors. His three-pointer with 53 seconds left put the Cavs up 92-89 to help the franchise win their first franchise first championship in history. KD said he would have no problem giving Kyrie or, or another Nets teammate the run the last shot in a game if that's what puts them in, in a position to win the game. Saying, quote, most definitely, like he said, when you look at somebody and you know that they can make the shots the same way you can or better, the best part about being in this position of power is like, and being a leader of a team where people look up at you is like, I enjoy getting out the way and letting in, letting and letting and letting others flourish and being a decoy. I really enjoy knowing that me standing in this corner may give Tyler Johnson or Karis LeVert or Torian Prince or Joe Harris just a little more space to do their thing. There's no argument that KD has been one of the best shooters in NBA history. He has averaged 27 points with a 49.1 field goal percentage and 38.1 three-point percentage in 849 career games. And obviously Kyrie is sensational when he's at his best. Something also very interesting that Kyrie said was that he essentially doesn't believe that the Brooklyn Nets have a head coach. If you don't know, they made headlines when they signed, uh, when they hired Steve Nash to be their head coach out of nowhere a few weeks ago. Uh, and KD and Kyrie were both very instrumental in, in that hiring. But Kyrie obviously made headlines as well, as he said today, that he doesn't see 
that the he doesn't think the Nets necessarily have a head coach, saying that KD could be a head coach, I could be a head coach. Man, I don't think that's the right mentality. I mean, for example, you look at that 2016 Cavs team between um, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and Tyron Lue, who was the head coach. LeBron could have coached that team. I mean, well, Tyron Lue is not a great coach, in my opinion. But LeBron never said anything like that. He never acted like that, per se. In some aspects, he did, but... He never publicly said that he could coach the Cavs. I don't I don't understand what Kyrie is thinking saying this, especially when the dynamic hasn't been established, when Steve Nash hasn't coached them, when Kyrie and KD never played together yet. How can you say that any one of them can coach the team? It makes it makes absolutely um it makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. So as I covered earlier, Doc Rivers has been fired by the Clippers, but it did not find him a lo- it did not take him a long time to find a new job. After a season of failure to live up to expectations, the Philadelphia 76ers found their next head coach fi- hiring, excuse me, former Orlando Magic, Boston Celtics, and most recently Los Angeles Clippers head coach Doc Rivers following a quote rapid courtship and negotiation according to Woj of ESPN. Shams has reported that the two sides agreed to a 5-year deal, so that's pretty significant. According to Kyle Newbeck of Philly Voice, Rivers will not have any front office responsibilities as part of this deal and will instead just be the head coach. Uh, I'm not sure if it was this like this last year, but I know that with the Clippers, Doc Rivers was the GM and the coach. So this is, so I guess Elton Brand will stay as the GM. This comes after the Sixers fired Brett Brown following their first round sweep to the, at the hands of the Boston Celtics. Woj noted that the, that, that, that the sacking was, quote, expected to be a precursor for mo- more upheaval for the 76ers, whose senior leadership, including general manager Elton Brand, will begin exploring changes in the front office structure. Um, it wasn't long until Philadelphia was connected to a number of marquee names, as well as uh, Cherania reported Clippers assistant coach Tyron Lue, Villanova head coach Jay Wright, and 76ers assistant coach Ime Udoka were among the early candidates. Keith Pompey of the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that Golden State Warriors associate head coach and former Cleveland Cavaliers head coach Mike Brown could be in the mix, as well as obviously recently fired Mike D'Antoni from the Houston Rockets. But Doc Rivers and Philadelphia got mutual interest fast, and... And yeah, with that, I'm going to switch gears to some more baseball. Uh, a 6-4 to Game 3 winner-take-all win over the Chicago White Sox on Thursday clinched the AL wildcard series for the Oakland Athletics. Both teams relied heavily on their bullpens after neither starter made it out of the second inning. A combined 17 pitchers took them out Thursday, totaling 330 pitches in the nine-inning game, so it was obviously not an extra-inning game. Oakland fared better in this battle while holding Chicago scoreless for the final four innings of the game. After facing an early 3-0 deficit, the A's bats came in the middle of the game and Chad Pinder had the go-ahead hit in the fifth inning. This was enough for the A's. And uh, Switching gears to the Thursday night football matchup that was today. Uh, let's see, it was the Broncos and the Jets. It took four games, but the Denver Broncos are finally in the win column in 2020, but the Jets cannot say the same thing as they fall to 0-4. Denver beat the Jets 37-28 in Thursday's AFC showdown at MetLife Stadium to improve to 1-3 on the season. Brett Ripey and Melvin Gordon III and Tim Patrick led the way for the Broncos. Um, I mean, they're still looking up at everyone in the AFC West. A, a solid showing, showing from Jamison Crowder was not enough to prevent the Jets from falling to 0-4. Ripey was 19-31 of for 242 yards, two touchdowns, and three interceptions, so not a very good game. But Melvin Gordon was sensational. 23 carries for 107 yards and two touchdowns and two catches for 11 yards. Um, so, I mean, this is just a very insignificant game. Neither of these teams are going to make the playoffs. And with that, I'm going to switch gears to baseball to close out this episode of Sean's Sports Stop. Um, the, the last baseball game of today was, um, 
highlighted by Clayton Kershaw striking out 13 batters over 8 shutout innings as my Los Angeles Dodgers beat the visiting Milwaukee Brewers 3-0 in Game 2 of the NL Wildcard Series at Dodger Stadium. The Dodgers swept the Brewers in the best-of-three series after beating the Brewers 4-2 on Wednesday. They've advanced to the NLDS for the eighth straight season behind the gem from Kershaw, who allowed only four base runners off three singles and one walk. The, the, the Dodgers scored their first their three runs in the fifth inning off an Austin Barnes RBI single with two out and a Mookie Betts bases clearing two RBI double. Uh, Betts registered the only extra base hit of the night for either team. Uh, Brandon Woodruff was great for the Brewers, but he gave up, gave up a couple of big hits. And that is all I have for this episode of Sean Sports Talk. We covered a lot, talked about a lot, but a lot of it was fairly short, like the baseball results. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you on number 298 soon. I'm out.